Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we're going to talk about a very difficult discussion that sometimes people find it's it's even too hard to do with their family and loved ones, but it's so important in order to help all of us to have our wishes known and respected regarding end-of-life care and, and the choices that we need to make. Here we have in the studio Dr. Anna Lowengard and Lori Protzman from Queens Medical Center. And as always, we're going to entertain your discussions at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. Last week, we just got word that Medicare may now start to cover for a visit specifically designed to discuss advanced care planning. And what that entails is really making decisions about what your goals are for your life and for the difficult time, should there be a situation that arises, when the end of life is coming around for either yourself or your loved ones. And these discussions are definitely not the easiest to have. So as part one of our two-part series on geriatrics and also advanced care planning, we're going to start the discussion today. Now, Dr. Anna, you've been in the business of helping people make these decisions for a very long time. Tell me a little bit about your background and experience in this area. Yeah, so um, I'm a geriatrician and hospice and palliative medicine physician and uh, doing a lot of hospice work here uh, in Hawaii before that in New York City doing home-based primary care for really the, the most frail elderly. Um, and I know I would say that um, we were talking about this a little bit a few minutes ago, but part of why I got into this and part of why I feel like it's so important is uh, my own experience with my grandfather, who about 15 or 16 years ago had had a number of strokes, and he was very clear about what he didn't want. Um, and he lived in an assisted living in Maine and ended up getting pneumonia. And this was sort of in the era before we had out-of-hospital orders, like what we'll probably talk a little bit about a, a provider order for life-sustaining treatment, um, where you can actually have orders in the community. Um, and he got a pneumonia, and they took him to the hospital, and they intubated him, put the breathing tube in. And um, it really was not what he'd wanted and what he had very explicitly said he didn't want. And, you know, he made it through, but he was really depressed. And they gave him um, medication for his depression, and he had side effects of that. And he would say, you know, pneumonia is an old man's friend. And he taught me a lot about respecting people's wishes. And it wasn't, you know, me who had made that decision. It was people in the emergency department. But it really made me feel very strongly that we need to understand what people want and what they don't want and make sure they understand their options and then respect those wishes when the time comes. It's a really important mission. Now, Lori Protzman, you're an advanced care planning coordinator over at Queens Medical Center. Tell me a little bit about how long you've been in this field and what inspired you to make advanced care planning part of what you wanted to dedicate your life to? Well, for me, it was um, helping people identify that when they're at end of life, there's a lot of fears and worries. And I would be, uh, as a nurse manager, I was at Kaiser, and we were starting a palliative care program there. And when I watched families struggling with what they would or would not want when their loved one was already nearing end of life, and having them have to make the tough calls and decisions about withdrawing and the like. What it told me is if we had started to have these conversations with the family and the patients well in advance, um, the end of life as it was happening in the hospital p 
possibly could have looked a lot different and a lot less unnecessary suffering, not just by the patient, but by the family and healthcare providers as well, because the staff would would voice their um, discontent on having to do difficult, painful interventions on patients that they knew were looked we're really close to end of life, and it just seemed like it was such futility on their part. And yet, for some family members, it wasn't. So it was the gap between the early conversations and the choices and the reality of what they were looking at and, and how do you blend it better and earlier. So that's really become the crux of the problem. And, you know, I think for a lot of folks out there, if if you've talked to your family members or you know what your parents or grandparents or aunties or uncles or spouses or anyone's real, their end-of-life choices and wishes are, you know, how did you start that discussion? That would be interesting to have you share with us because that's sort of the discussion we're going to be having today. So if you've brought this up with a loved one, let us know how it went. You can join us at 941-3689 or Neighbor Islands 877-941-3689. Eight, nine. Dr. Anna, I wanted to talk a little bit about your grandfather's experience. You know, I had a, an individual that I had taken care of for many years last year, and he wound up falling off the bus and broke his hip and wound up in the hospital. Now, here was a man who had advanced directives, but he lived alone. And he did not intend on getting up and falling off the bus and winding up in the hospital. And he also didn't have a copy of those advanced directives present in his medical record. He had filled it out recently and had left it at home and had not brought it in. So a lot of people don't necessarily recognize that when you come into the hospital, the default answer, what doctors will do, is everything until specifically told otherwise. And this man was put in the ICU. He was put on a breathing machine, much like You mentioned your grandfather. He developed a pneumonia. And and it wasn't until his family came from the mainland that they were able to go into his apartment and find this advanced directive and actually bring it to the hospital and say, this is not what he wants. Mm -hmm. And we need to take this this breathing tube off because that's not how he wanted to spend his last days. And we actually, they in the hospital, they respected that. They're like, we have the paper. It's legal. It's documented. We're going to do this. And he was able to be alert enough to say thank you before he left the planet. And it it really started this push on my side to make sure that any of the people that I take care of who have advanced directives actually have a copy in their chart. And these days, everything's gone electronic. So if you have a copy that was previously on paper that you gave to your doctor 10, 15, 20 years ago, that may not be easily accessible anymore. And so it's a good idea to update it. Or if you have a copy of the older one, bring it in so it can be attached electronically to your chart. But in that situation, it was someone who really had thought about it, and it still wasn't accessible. So regardless of if you've had this discussion, or even if you haven't and you just have wishes yourself, the idea is to let other people be aware of that. So was your grandfather, had he let other people be aware of that? No, he absolutely had. And I think that it was, you know, I think it it, it was a circumstance not dissimilar to some of the circumstances here where they might know you in the emergency department. And I think that there's sometimes there's a relationship. That's never good that, when the emergency room knows you. <laughs> well, where the community is so small that they, yeah. they just say, oh, well, we could just put this in for a day. And then, okay. you know, and I think this was a little bit of a different time. Um, but sure. I think that was part of the circumstance. I will say that the, you know, a couple of years later when he had a, an episode of congestive heart failure and fluid in his lungs, that they did just make him comfortable and, you know, gave him medication really just to soothe 
soothe his his shortness of breath, and they did let him pass away peacefully. So he got what he wanted the second time around. But um, but I think that what you bring up is a, it's a really good question. What do we do in this day and age where we have some technology, and you know that a hospital system, if you go, you know, if you see a physician within a system may have, you know, evidence of what your wishes are if you've shared it with your physician. Um, But, you know, if you don't end up in that particular system, then nobody may have a record of it. And and I will say that's something that we, uh, you know, many of us in the community, you know, leaders from HPH and Queens and HMSA are looking at how could we have a registry that would actually be able to um, store all of these. And and I think that another thing that I think you touched on is the importance of updating these. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, these are not static conversations that you start the conversation with somebody and their circumstances may change and their desires and goals will change along with that. So I think that, you know, many of us think of these documents as something that you fill out once and then they're good forever. Um, but some of them, you know, may change and, you, you know, as your life changes and your circumstances change, you may decide differently. Well, and we're going to talk about those specific documents and kind of the conversation in just a moment. But first, I'd like to talk with Michelle from Kaneohe. Michelle, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you for having me on, Beth Ann. All right. Well, Beth Ann is one of our wonderful oh, hosts and my mentor. So I feel like you just gave me a compliment, Michelle. But tell me a little bit about what your thoughts are in advanced care planning. Well, I think it's a very important conversation. My late husband was about 16 years older than me, and at one point while he was still healthy, we talked about these things, and I was also fortunate enough for some years to be a volunteer with Hospice Hawaii, so I've been on, as it were, both sides of the bed, you know, helping other families, and then when it became my time, I felt that I was a little bit more prepared, perhaps, than some folks as far as being able to have the conversation with my husband and also with the medical professionals involved when he had first a mild heart attack, a pair of strokes on top of it, ultimately fell while he was in the hospital, cracked his hip, and it was pretty much circling the drain from there. It was April 8th, uh, 2011, and he passed away August 8th. It'll be four years in August. Well, and so it certainly sounds like you're one of the angels that works for hospice, and I really do mean that because I, I know some folks who, who take on that task. And whereas everyone else runs from the crisis, they run towards it. And, and I absolutely admire anybody who works in any palliative care or end-of-life care, because those are not easy discussions to have. And you mentioned that you had the opportunity to discuss this with your husband. What were some of the things that made that conversation difficult? And how were you able to overcome those? Now, you had the previous experience in hospice, but was there something about that conversation that made it too close to home? Well, I think it was my own denial that, um, geez, can this really be happening? Is this really the real end? Um, it was, you know, just, just watching watching my husband's, uh, he had dementia on top of everything else, and it was it was just difficult for me. And, but I wanted to do everything I could, of course, to help alleviate his pain and suffering. 
And I was really able to wait until he was able to have a uh, hmm, cognizant conversation about it. There, there's a book I'd really recommend uh, that was recommended to me by a friend who was also, I was using her as kind of a spiritual advisor at the time. And she's since passed away. But it's called, the book is called Final Gifts which is a compilation of 200 hospice stories by a pair of hospice nurses. And what they really stress is the ability for both parties to have open-ended conversations. Like if the person says, geez, I'm weak, I feel like I'm getting ready to die, uh, don't deny that for the person. Just, you know, if they start being afraid or whatever, just let them open the conversation and, uh, you know, don't, don't say, oh, dear, no, no, you're, you're getting better. We're going to get through this. Let them, you know, recognize that, that, you know, hey, they may be going, they may be recognizing things that on a level that we can't recognize because we're still actively living and they're in the process of actively dying. Well, Michelle, you bring up some really good points. And one of those that I'd like to to really emphasize is not denying people their feelings, because that's truly what they're experiencing. And that's important to respect that and to listen to what they have to say, and not necessarily try and say, no, 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 of course, that's not happening. No, 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 because you're right, sometimes people do know a bit more about what's going on in their body. And they have this sort of gut instinct about what's going to happen and we shouldn't deny them the respect of knowing that that's how they feel. So it certainly sounds like you've you've had a great chance to to really experience that firsthand and to help other people through it and to accept help when you need it. And that's another area that we're going to talk a little bit about. Lori, now you've been an advanced care planning coordinator and a nurse for many, many years. Is it often difficult for families or people to to know when to ask for help and accept that help? It, well, it is. F- for many patients and families that you're working with, to call it up front makes it much more real. And um, I think your last caller talked about the window of opportunity to talk about the fears. I hit many times just the opposite. They don't want to go there because it's so fearful to them to even explore it. If you bring it up, it becomes real to them. So uh, for me, working with uh, patients and families, it's about exploring their understanding of where they're at, of their illness, what they're hoping for, what worries them most, uh, providing them information about what those treatment options can be should their worst fear arise, rather than taking them where I think they need to go, you know, taking a step back and exploring it with them from their perspective. And then I like to even explore with them um, experiences they've had. Tell me about a good ending that you had in your family. What did it look like? What went well? What would you have liked differently? And if it didn't go well, you know, why? What fell apart? What part would you like to have changed? So many times when I meet with um, uh, patients who are referred to the clinic that we provide is um, they see the document of an advanced health care directive as a threat to um, the care will stop if they make a choice about prolonging life or do not prolonging life. If they choose do not prolong life, it's like stop caring, do not care anymore. And when we, we turn it into a gray conversation where 
we can talk about in what situations would your quality of life no longer meet a level that you're you're content with and where you would want someone to step in and say, then shall we stop at this point? And I think the new advanced healthcare directives that the state of Hawaii have initiated this year that allows um, patients and families to have the conversation about what living well means to them and um, what a good life means to them, and then at what point would they not want their life prolonged, it eliminates that pressure of just checking a box, which feels just too um, final. So now you mentioned the new directives that the state is supporting. Where can people find those? You know, you can get them in most doctor's offices will have it. But uh, one of the best places they can go and download is at the kakuamau.org, uh, www.kakuamau.org, and uh, download it. And not only does it have the forms, but it has the frequently asked questions. It has some wonderful handouts about what CPR really means, the types of um on artificial nutrition and hydration, things that people don't really have a lot of time to talk about in a busy clinic practice. They'll ask what they would or would not want, but without uh, the concept of what it looks like, it becomes difficult to make those choices. So it's a really good web, web uh, it's a good place to start. Absolutely. And we've had some of the folks from Kakua Mao on. And, you know, unfortunately what happens, and which is why I'm so excited that there may now be coverage just specifically to talk about advanced care planning is that, you know, you'll see somebody who comes in and we should really start having these discussions with people at any time when their health is under a serious crisis, but also even way before that. And for those folks who are over, you know, 75 or so, we should make sure that we have these directives done. So one of the things that you that I do in my clinic is that I say to somebody, okay, let's see, do you have it noted or not? And if not, we need to discuss it. But realistically, when they're there to discuss back pain, their blood pressure, their arthritis, maybe their cholesterol, and all these other issues, you don't really have the time that you need to put into that discussion. And you want to, but if you do that, then you're eliminating the discussion on arthritis or you're eliminating how to address blood pressure mm-hmm. because you can't do all of those things in one visit in a short period of time realistically and thoroughly. It's not that you don't want to. But people often have a hard time getting in to see the doctor Mm -hmm. from getting a ride or getting parking or showing up. And there's all these other elements. So you want to do it all at one visit, but it's just not really possible. And so that's why I think any ability to separate out this discussion and have this discussion by itself with your physician or your primary care provider is an absolutely excellent opportunity for you to bring up your religious beliefs, bring up your spiritual beliefs, bring up your medical beliefs, and really go through this discussion and, and really answer all the questions that you have. And know that it's it's a discussion in progress. There's nothing that you can decide that you can't change your mind about or that you can't revisit or look at again. And so that's the other part of it. You know, so this is this is a conversation we're going to talk some more about. We're going to go through the specifics of advanced directives. We're going to go through when can somebody who has memory issues and dementia make decisions? Is there a time when they can? We're going to talk about what these documents are called, and we'll talk about the Physician Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment, which we alluded to at the very top of the show. So I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Anna Lowengard and Lori Protzman. They're both from Queens Medical Center. And when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion, and we'd like to hear from you. So you can join us 
at 941-3689. Toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. If you've established advanced directives, what did you decide and why? We'll be right back. On the next Humankind, we visit with Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, a leading researcher in stress reduction at the University of Massachusetts and a teacher of mindfulness meditation. He's author of Wherever You Go, There You Are and Coming to Our Senses. Next time on Humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace. The limits of free speech have been put to the test lately in France. Yeah, what we call the liberté d'expression, which is not really freedom of speech, but freedom of expression, of being able to say whatever you want. And meet the characters that have shaped the history of Paris, like Charles de Gaulle. He really had the knack of presenting himself as a kind of incarnation of French history, all centered in Paris. It's on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m., following Fresh Air. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ferraro Choi, and Ulupono Initiative. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Chief Medical Officer Dr. Anna Lowengard from the Queen's Clinically Integrated Physician Network. She is a geriatric specialist and has done plenty of work in palliative care and in home care for patients. And also Lori Protzman. She's an advanced care planning coordinator and a nurse with many years of experience, dare I say decades, mm-hmm. although can. I'm aging her. <laughs> And uh, and certainly somebody who knows a lot about having these discussions. Now, at the top of the show, Dr. Anna, you were describing a situation with your grandfather, and you kind of referred to a form, and it was called the Physician's Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment Form. And, and I want to go ahead and address that a little bit, because that's a form that is a little bit newer in its origin. It's a little bit different than a living will or advanced directive. And it covers a different situation. So let's kind of mention that right out front so that we can really help clear up some confusion. So uh, just to clarify, the Advanced Healthcare Directive is really a form that somebody says, okay, this is who I would like to make decisions for me if I'm no longer able, and gives them the opportunity to sort of spell out what in a future situation where they couldn't make decisions, some guidance for that person that they're assigning to make their decisions. That it's actually now in Hawaii the provider order for life-sustaining treatment because now nurse practitioners are also able to sign it along with physicians. Um, and that's really, I like, uh, my colleague Daniel Fishberg says it's a right-now order. So it's not for some situation in the future. It's actually what you would want right now. And it can be that you want everything done. In many cases, it's that you want to limit the kinds of health care um, treatment that you want at this point because you have serious illness or you're at the end of life. Um, it's the only type of directive that actually is a physician or a nurse practitioner provider's order in the community so that it actually says, this is what I do and don't want. And for the emergency responders who might come if somebody came to your house or if you had something happen to you out in the community, it's actually an order that they have to follow before they bring you to the hospital. And it's the only way to have that kind of um, um, desire so explicit and then signed by um, a healthcare provider to make that an active order. 
Well, and I think because there was there was a puka, there was a problem. Because if you had a directive, but you were not in the hospital, and you were home, and 911 was called, they are mandated to do everything they can for you until you come to the hospital. So it was this kind of this catch-22. If, if your you know, auntie or uncle or grandma is very old and frail and falls down the stairs and winds up unconscious and you call 911, if that person has directives that say do not intubate or do not put in a breathing machine, do not do CPR, and you call 911, which is the right thing to do if if the person is is suddenly falling and injuring themselves, but they're going to wind up doing those things mm-hmm. because if you don't have this order, um, this provider's order, and I appreciate you saying provider because the top of the show, I had some nurse practitioners who corrected me a few years ago and said <laughs> primary care provider, not just physician. So that was a good uh, a good learning lesson for me. So once again, I think we're incorporating all of the healthcare practitioners that do their best to take care of folks. And in that situation, if you do call 911, they may just start doing chest compressions. They may start doing breathing machines if there is not any order not to, even if by the time the person comes to the emergency room, everything is stopped because there is an order not to. There was that gap in what do we do, and this answers the gap. Exactly. And I would add that, you know, even if you've assigned somebody to be your power of attorney for healthcare decisions and they're with you in the home saying, look, I, I am the person to make their decisions, that's not legal in the pre-hospital setting. So that the, the person, you know, with the ambulance who comes, that legally they're still obliged to do everything for that patient. They can't determine that you are the person to make decisions until they get the, you get to the hospital. Now, that's a little different if you're in a facility of some type. Well, these these orders, the provider order for life-sustaining treatment, are good. That's part of it, too, and, and part of the beauty of them is that they, they actually can go between facilities. So whether you're home or you're in a nursing facility or in the hospital, that these orders can go with you and and, and be able to clarify your, your wishes and your goals um, so that you're protected. And that really, you know, I think the goal of all of these things is that you get the care you want when you want it, and that we don't provide unwanted care, which happens all over this country every day. All the time. Okay, I want to take a couple of callers, and then we'll come back to some of the questions that we were talking about answering. Let's first talk to Rike in Honolulu. Rike, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. Aloha. Uh, what can we do for you today? I'm, I'm a little bit out of breath. So uh, I have a rare and incurable cancer and uh, a few months ago I decided that I was going to have my celebration of life while I was alive. What a wonderful idea, Rike. Why wait until you're not there to have the party? You can actually be there and have people tell you while you're alive how much they care about you. Excellent idea. Yes, and I'm glad I did, because shortly after all truth started dropping, the treatment failed, and, uh, I well, I, I decided to stop treatment. Uh, but before the celebration, my, my daughters and I went uh, and had had a session with a therapist, and we worked out uh, uh, 
directives and wills and all of that. So that was all off the table already. Excellent. So you brought your daughters with you so that you yep. could make the decision as a family, which yep. is really the best way to go about it is letting them understand where you're coming from and also helping them to be part of the decision so they can remember it when and if the time ever comes and know that this is what they're doing by respecting your wishes is respecting you as well. So what an excellent way to involve your family in the discussion because it really is a discussion. It's not a one decision one time. So excellent, Rike. I'm glad that you were able to incorporate them into that. Yeah, there, there were a couple of things that they weren't ready to talk about, like uh, what to do with my ashes. Um, my body goes to UH, for example. And, uh, but in the meantime, well, we've had time. And uh, we're, we're totally clear. That's wonderful, Rike. I'm glad that that everyone is really on board in the same place because that's really important. So I want to thank you for sharing your experience and bringing up the part that it is really a discussion that incorporates family and incorporates loved ones. And, you know, it could incorporate religious people um, as well, whoever is your source of guidance and someone you feel it's important to understand your wishes. So Thank you for sharing that with us today. Yeah, and one more thing I want to say. My, my um, oncologist uh, uh, said at some point that he said, you know, I can give you all all the myths in the world, but I, I want to put you in touch with the palliative care people because they know far better uh, what will work and what won't. Absolutely. Shout out to all of those angels that work in palliative care because there there is a difference, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, about palliative care versus hospice versus continuing with whomever your provider is and how really we can all work together as a team. So Yeah, and I, I was just really grateful uh, that my oncologist would, would uh, sign off. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that with us today and wishing you and your daughters the best of luck and the best of health. And however you define that as what works best for your wishes and your goals. Absolutely. So thanks for sharing. We have somebody else on the line. We have Lisa from Kailua. Lisa, what can we do for you today? Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Oh, I'm sorry. I have a question about a living will as opposed to the advanced health care directive. Great. Do you is, want to know what the difference is? Are living wills still current? And also, how um, if you have an advanced care directive, is there a time limit on it? For example, we have one from 2005. Is it still good? Great questions. I have Lori shaking her head here, ready to answer them. Lori? Well, a living will is just a form of advanced health care directive, and many times it's been embedded into a living in a trust. But um, yes, a living, a living will and advanced health care directive both are uh, legalized documents as long as they've either been witnessed appropriately by statute or notarized. They don't require, uh, advanced health care directive does not require legal support to do it, whereas living wills many times have that engaged conversation. 
Um, what I find is that uh, it's not that they ever outdate, uh, Lisa. Okay. Um, but what you should do is, at a regular basis, pull it out with your family and friends and and uh, identify if has anything changed or even the people that you chose as your health care agents. Sometimes we find very elderly people have chosen their spouse and their spouse is now deceased. Right. And now they are in the situation where that advanced directive doesn't have a health care agent and their wishes can't necessarily be followed, um, you know, because that person is no longer there to stand up for them. So they should be looked at. They should be revisited. Um, and and shared shared broadly with uh, family, friends, physicians, organizations where health is uh, healthcare is provided. Thank Can you I, very much. Can All I right. Add one thing to that. Yes, please. I would do, just Dr. say Dr. that um, what is actually legally recognized in each state is different, and so there are states. I believe now. I haven't looked at this in a little while. Where a living will is actually the state recognized document, um, whereas for us in Hawaii, you know, our document actually assigns a healthcare agent. A living will generally does, does not. not. It's usually just sort of a this is what I would or wouldn't want, um, and that is sort of incorporated now into the Hawaii Advanced Directive that we now have. Um, but I would just encourage you to, if it, you know, if you're not in Hawaii to know what the actual legal document that's recognized in your state or if your parents are in another state um, to look at that because a living will def- definitely doesn't usually specify a healthcare um, agent or healthcare proxy or whatever the terminology is in the state that you're living in. And I think that's probably one of the most important parts of um, thinking about advanced healthcare directives and planning. So I'm curious, Dr. Anna, if you had a situation, Lori mentioned, where you've identified a proxy and that proxy is a spouse or somebody who's deceased. That document, if it was previously legal, is it still? If a document assigns somebody who's no longer living, well, they wouldn't have anyone to make the decisions except for, you know, there is a surrogacy um, possibility. So, um, you know, people who have a relationship with that person in the state of Hawaii can come forth. Um, Physicians actually have uh, some responsibility to find any interested parties so that another surrogate decision maker um, could probably be found. And I assume that the rest of the documentation, the sort of living will type, what makes now, you know, it's a more explicit form of, you know, what I would want, what makes life meaningful for me um, should still stand um, as that You would hope, desire. sure. If somebody yeah. has gone through this discussion, yeah. made their decisions, written them down, and yeah. by the way, just didn't look at it because it was back in 2005 or some other time, that their wishes would still be respected, there may need to be somebody else as the surrogate decision exactly. maker should that situation arise. And the hope that they would be willing to support that person's wishes. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the other interesting part of it is when we talk about surrogate decision makers, really, they're not making a big decision. Their goal is to make sure that the doctors follow the wishes of the person who wrote it down. If those wishes are clear, the surrogate decision or the, the, the health care proxy is supposed to make sure someone like me or someone like yourselves are following the advanced directive. You mentioned it earlier and you said that their wishes are documented and respected. And Dr. Anna, I'm curious, because I read some stats recently, and they were looking at advanced directives and how often they're not followed. It was kind of surprising. Yeah, I mean, I think oftentimes they're not followed um, because... like this they person that I them. described, right? You can't find them. You live alone. I'm not I allowed to go break often, into your apartment. I, I mean, can't go get them. Sure. Thankfully, in my career, I would say it's relatively rare that somebody has explicit documentation, has assigned a health care proxy, and that that person doesn't 
follow what that what their loved one has has explicitly said. It does happen occasionally, and I think that you know it it is true that these are very emotionally charged decisions. And I you think you mentioned that- a very scary possibility earlier, though. You said that what if you go to a medical center where you don't have a copy of your directive? And how often do people go to the nearest medical center? And all the medical centers in the island do an excellent job. But what if your advanced directive is attached to my electronic medical record and not to your electronic medical record? And that has happened. Yeah. So, you know, when somebody, if you have a provider order for life-sustaining treatment, it should be posted either on your refrigerator or, you know, in your, over your bed if you're, if you're bed-bound um, at home. And usually the emergency responders will actually bring that um, with them for the emergency department. But we're working. You know, I don't know how long it will take, um, but we, we would really like to have a state registry for at least for the Pulse documents and ideally for advanced healthcare directives. And I think, you know, what we really would like to do, um, certainly at Queens, and I, I think that um, HPH and others around the state are looking at how do we normalize this conversation that, you know, all of us around the table who are relatively healthy should have had these conversations with our loved ones so that, you know, it, things happen. We don't know what's going to happen in the next hour or tomorrow and that our loved ones actually have some guidance as to what we all would or wouldn't want and start having these conversations that just kind of evolve over time. And it doesn't I mean, it will always have some emotional charge to it. You know, it's 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 unpleasant things we're talking about to some extent, but I think, um, you know, and to our caller who invo- in, involved her daughters, it's such a gift to family members. You know, I think that when you describe conversations where um, nobody wants to start that conversation, nobody wants to give up on hope. And I think that the patient doesn't want to give up on the hope for their family that the patient might survive and the family doesn't want to, you know, dash the person who's being treated's hope. But it's the elephant in the room. And I think at a certain point, everyone knows that person is transitioning, that that, that the treatment is no longer working. And I think that, you know, when healthcare providers who can come in and have this conversation in a skilled way and, you know, as Lori described, really explore their understanding, um, it, it's such a relief to most people, you sure know, to break the ice, it up. right? All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Anna Lowengard and Lori Protzman, and they're both experts in having that advanced care directive discussion begin. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about when to start these discussions and what to do if your loved one might have some problems like dementia that makes it more very difficult to know what their decision-making capacity could be. Is it ever too late to establish advanced health directives? When we come back, we're going to discuss more about it, but we'd like to hear from you. And if you've established directives or if you'd like to share how this type of a situation has occurred in your life and how you were able to to look at the wishes of the individual involved and really respect those, or if something happened and they weren't, we'd love to hear it. All of us can learn from each other's experiences. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. I knew where I was going, knew and did not know where I was going, in the sorcerer of blue night, where all things were changed. Night People, this week on Selected Shorts, from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. 
I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. Next time on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll talk about the latest in box jelly research and getting relief from jellyfish and ant stings. We'll hear how Sting No More went from the lab to the military and consumer market. That's next time on Bite Marks Cafe, Wednesday at 5. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Anna Lowengard and Laurie Protzman, and they're both experts in advanced care planning. What is it that you want at the end of your life, when and if that time should come? And would you want to have everything done, or are there certain things which you would like to not have if you were in a situation where your life may be prolonged, and that doesn't necessarily follow along with what you decide is your quality of life. We'd like to hear from you. You can join us at 941-3689. Toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, I want to talk uh, just for a few minutes about something that I've said we were going to talk about, Dr. Anna. We're going to do it right now. Dementia. This makes somebody's decision-making capacity altered. What do you do if your elderly loved one has developed dementia and how can you continue to have this discussion when they how do you know if they have decision making capacity yeah so that's a very individual um situation and um get somebody like you or Lori involved <laughs> okay step one um yeah and i would say that you know if if you have a loved one who's diagnosed in the early stages of dementia this would be a very important thing to start thinking about right away um, if you have any question about how advanced that dementia is, um, taking um, that loved one to see their physician, the capacity to assign um, a healthcare agent and to do an advanced healthcare directive usually can be established by a primary care physician or a geriatrician. And in some cases, it requires referral to a psychiatrist or neurologist. But it's really, you know, can that person, does that person have the capacity to understand what they're signing and what the consequences of doing this will be? Um, and it, it, it just... It, a lot of people in early stages of dementia would be able to do that, but you do need a professional to establish that. And once they get beyond the early stages of dementia, oftentimes it will be too late for them to really be able to explain back to you um, why they're choosing the person that they are and what that means. And what do you do in that situation if you haven't had this discussion, if your elderly loved one has been diagnosed with moderate to severe Alzheimer's dementia or another type of dementia? How do you handle that conversation? Or is it ever a point where we can't trust what anyone says because they didn't decide for themselves, so the default option is do everything all the time, extend and prolong? How, how do we handle that yeah. fairly delicate situation if people haven't yet established their wishes? Well, I think it depends on what state you live in, first of all. I think in the in Hawaii, where I mentioned, we do have a surrogacy law so that interested parties, you know, can come forward when somebody can no longer make decisions for themselves to make those decisions. Um, and so th there are certain things um, like... Um, 
not providing uh, artificial nutrition and hydration, that a, a surrogate who's appointed, just sort of self-appointed with the help of a physician who's looking for who might be interested in making decisions for this patient. Um, there are some extreme things that, you know, like um, foregoing artificial nutrition and hydration that they can't on their own make a decision. But if there are two physicians who actually say that this clinically makes sense, then that person could, um, with those physicians, make that decision. So thankfully, you know, even if the person hasn't um, explicitly um, described what they would like and who they'd like to make their um, decisions for them when they can no longer. In this state, there are processes, and in most states there are. Um, it's just varying degrees of what they can actually decide upon. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's ever too late. There no, are ways I mean, to the ideal is to have you know, this discussion. To, to say things sure. yourself. I think that you know, oftentimes when I'm helping um, surrogate decision makers to make the decisions, I th- I say to them, well, you know, uh, assuming that they knew that person well, how did they live their life? You know, what was important to them? Were they somebody you know who went to the doctor all the time, or did, had they not seen somebody in 15 years? Did they were they comfortable in the medical community? You know, with, what do you think that they, they would want at this point? You know, and what can you actually what can we collectively glean from how they live their life, even if you didn't have explicit conversations, um, to try and help people to make these hard decisions? Well, they are hard decisions. Now, we have another, we actually had a shy caller in line that wanted to know something very important, and I have to say, I don't know the answer. And that's going to put you on the spot, (laughs) either one of you. So he called to say, okay, so you get those bracelets, right? You get them, you can have them put your medical conditions on, et cetera. And what if it says, do not resuscitate? So there actually exists um, in this state a bracelet called a, a comfort care only DNR bracelet. And actually, before the post order um, came about, which I guess was about six or seven years ago, was passed in the state of Hawaii. Um, and they we still actually they still exist. I think you can still order them. They're just used less because we have a post that replaces them. But you can get what's called a CCO DNR bracelet made um, that has that same effect. And it will be respected by EMS mm. if they see it. It's I don't considered... know that it has the same legal okay. implications. I think it's, um, you know, it's a good question, and I don't know as I well as I like ought I'm to. Alone, <laughs> okay. We will get we will get you an answer, shy caller, because that's a really important thing. And I have brochures for those bracelets in my office, so yeah. I really better know. And I'm going to go take a look at that brochure and find out. I don't out. think that they're illegally they're okay. not a legally standing order. I think having the bracelet and having a pulse document is probably the best thing to do. Maybe if you're somebody who has a pulse but you're still out in the community um, and something might happen to you in the community, having a bracelet, but then having, you know, a pulse stuck in your wallet, folded up and stuck in your wallet would not be a bad thing. All right. I'm going to call some of my friends who are EMTs and find out what would they do if they saw the bracelet? What would they follow? Because I'll just I'll just go to the source. Okay, excellent question. And uh, I'll come back next week with the answer to that. Okay, we have another caller from Kaimuki. Is it Salome? Yes, it's Salome, but I prefer Salome. Salome, okay. Yes, that's that's nice. what David said to me in my earphone, and I went, okay, I'm going to try my fancy pronunciation, but <laughs> well, but there goes my pronunciation. Uncle, that's what he called me, Salome. All right, so I'll go with Salome. Cause, Thank you. Cause I just that tuned sounds in, good. and okay. one of the things I'm planning on, uh, I'm not critical or anything, I'm ter- perfectly healthy, but looking ahead, I was thinking Oregon has the compassion and care. Does, is the pulse the same as that? Um, Oregon program of compassion care? Excellent question. Oregon does something special, Mm -hmm. and uh, I can only hope that 
you know, personally, I hope that we all take a close look at that and try and model something similar to that if it's considered appropriate for individuals. But I'm going to defer this to Dr. Anna. She's in the hot seat. Lori's pointing to her. I'm pointing to her. (laughs) And if you could see us right now, we're pointing to Dr. Anna Lowengard. So you're on point, Anna. Yeah, so what Oregon and some other states in the country actually have um, is physician-assisted suicide, and that um, is very different from the Pulse document. We do oh. not have that here in Hawaii, although there, you know, it has come up in the legislature um, a few times. Um, and, and I think it's very polarizing. I think that there are a lot of patients who feel that they would like to have the option um, to end their life when they feel that their quality of life um, may be something that doesn't um, match what their goals are. Um, I think a lot of physicians feel that, um, you know, we do have really advanced palliative care these days and and that we would like to think that we can actually care for people in a way that this would not need to be an option. Um, But that is very different from what we're talking about, Um, although, you know, there might um, end up being such a similar law in Hawaii someday. We just don't know. Okay, that answered that question. The second question is... um you mentioned about having your pulse, pulse, is that right, pulse, <laughs> in your wallet. That's a big, that's a document with like a couple pages. Now, how are you going to have that on your person when you, like, for example, my partner had a mild hot heart attack, and the uh, fire department came. They never asked for any papers. They put him in the wagon and took him down to the hospital. Um, it's not something that, quote, healthy people, when you have a sudden heart attack, uh, carry along with them in their wallet. So don't they, do they have anything like a card that would be more um, compatible with the wallet carrying? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, it's a good please. question. Uh, it's a good question, Salome, because, you know, I mean, I carry a big purse, but I don't really hope to carry a bigger one. And I'm hoping someday I can downsize it. So you're right. Do you want to carry this big four or five pages with you all the time? Do they have a card? And, you know, they used to have this little thing where you could get your EKG shrunk down to the size of a credit card so you could keep it in your wallet. And I thought that was kind of cool. But, you know, do we have a a provider order for life-sustaining treatment miniaturized? I don't know, Anna, uh, Lori. I, I don't think so. But what a great idea! Well, well I, I've seen one. I've You've act- seen it. I've actually seen them shrink it down and and laminate it and carry it with them. But I want to stress the fact that the Pulse document is really meant for those people who are seriously ill, not the not Salome, the your friend that um, had a heart attack and may have been very healthy up to that point. More important at that time is. This patient could self-state, this is what I want you to do when they came to pick him or her up. And at that point, um, the paramedics are going to follow along on that journey into the, uh, into the emergency room. The pulse, on the other hand, is when it's accepted that they may be in the last year or so of life. And, um, and it's like Dr. Anna said, um, it's the now document because now treatment options are becoming more clearly um, urgent that life may be nearing an end and what treatments in that phase of life would they or would they not want. So most of us, I, in fact, I've had physicians say to me when I meet in the community is, well, why do I encourage them to do an advanced health care directive? I like the Pulse. It's two pages and it's very easy. Well, the Pulse does not have a health care agent on it. And um, only the advanced health care directive names their agent. So really, people who are very ill need both documents. 
The Advanced Healthcare Directive, though, is, as it says, in advance. We are exploring in advance what we would or would not want if seriously ill. So they're very different in how they're framed and what their function is. Well, and another thing is, although you can wait until you're really sick to have the pulsed and an advanced directive, you don't have to. Absolutely you not. You can create one right now should you choose to do so, and you don't have to have a serious medical illness. You could make one. At the age of majority, 18 years old, people should start thinking about what they would or would not want and start normalizing that conversations in their families. Yeah, because a lot of 18-year-olds are thinking of being indestructible. Indestructible. So I don't know if that would be the best <laughs> of all times, but great idea. Right. You know, make that conversation something that we discuss. We've got time for a couple more callers. We've got Dennis on the line from Mililani. Dennis, welcome to the Body Show. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling. I have a, a couple questions on this post. I had a friend that was in a care home slash nursing home. Uh, he was relatively healthy and of a sound mind but he needed to be in a uh, nursing home. And then the nurse and the social worker said, oh, he should, he needs to have a provider, provider order for life-sustaining treatment, host. And uh, so we looked at it, and then they were not very helpful in giving us direction on how to fill it out. I'm just his friend. I'm not even his uh, relative or anything. But... Uh, for example, in Part A, we attempt resuscitation, CPR, or do not attempt. And I looked at the nurse and the social worker, and I said, look at this, uh, my friend. He's, in, he's conscious. He, uh, naturally, we're going to pick uh, attempt resuscitation. And under what condition would you uh, not attempt uh, resuscitation? So we look at the healthcare directive, and the healthcare directive is more specific, and you're probably familiar with that. Make her as incurable, irreversible condition, result in death in a short time, make her as unconscious, etc. And so that's where, to me, I think the post is sort of um, unnecessary because we have the health care directive. Or if, it, or if we, it is a law that we have to have it filled out, we need to be real careful that the patient filling it out knows and is getting good uh, suggestions and good uh, information as to what to fill out. Because the nurse said, well, you could fill out the do not attempt resuscitation. And I said, what if my friend had a heart attack right now and you followed the post? What are you going to do in the nursing home? I guess we're not going to do anything because the post says do not attempt resuscitation. So I said, that's ridiculous. Um, he should be at he should be given uh, CPR uh, as long as his heart is in good enough condition. Anyway, that's my question, and that was my initial uh, introduction to the post. Okay, so, Dennis, let's talk about that for a sec, yeah. because I, I want to address that, and you brought up a really good question. Who needs a pulse, and and why is that even an issue when you're in a care home? And, Lori, you seem to have some thoughts on this. Well, um, there are care home operators who want the comfort to know in an emergency when, if the patient should suddenly become very ill, what they would or would not want in more detail than what's on an advanced health care directive oftentimes just says prolong life, do not prolong. So, so, so this physician's order for life-sustaining treatment really is 
prior to going to the emergency room, do you want to be resuscitated or not? Correct. And part A of it, as the caller was talking about, says... Um, yes, Dan, no, or yes or no. In the middle. But it says people don't understand that with CPR, CPR is only done when the patient's heart has stopped and they're no longer breathing. In other words, they have already died. They've had a natural death. At that point, would they or would they not want their life restarted? That decision made leads them into the next step that says, well, if they still have a heart rate, uh, heartbeat, and they're breathing, they're still alive. They still have treatment options, which could be as much as do everything because I'm still alive. But I might say, no, if I've passed, don't try to bring me back to life. However, I want you to do everything in your power to sustain my life by checking full treatment until I get to the hospital and, and medical professionals can decide where am I going in this. So you bring up a really important point I want to clarify, and that is that you can have a post that says resuscitate and you can be brought to the emergency room and your advanced healthcare directive can say if I have an incurable illness and I'm terminal and I'm not doing well do not resuscitate that's very those correct. two documents do not have to agree they do not because they're used for different reasons totally sometimes absolutely and that's an important thing because very often I think people think that they have to say the same thing no they do not and that's that's something that we want to mention because they're used in different situations. Correct. So when Dennis mentioned his friend who is healthy and otherwise doing well, his pulse may say resuscitate. Correct. Bring him to the emergency room. Correct. And then once he's there and they have more information, medical data, diagnostic testing, et cetera, then they can look at the advanced directive. And have that conversation again. I think you just answered a bunch of folks' questions because it seemed a little confusing. Dr. Anna, we have maybe about 30 seconds or so. If somebody wants to establish advanced directives or a pulse, what should they do first? Well, I think um, speaking to their family, looking at kakuamau.org for the actual documents, um, talking to their physician about what their options are um, at HPH or at Queens, going to an advanced care planning clinic, um, you know, looking at what, what uh, supports there are in our community that can help you to figure this out. You're not on your own. Great. And people should be able to help you fill out the documents and talk to you and explain it to you. You know, how many times do people get forms that they're told to fill out and they don't understand what they're for? So... Yeah. I'm sorry that happened to you, Dennis, or to your friend, but let's hope that we all get better at these conversations. Yeah, that conversation is so important. It's not a form. <laughs> it's a conversation that actually leads to the filling out of a form, um, and it's an evolving conversation. All right. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining us today and sharing your expertise. Dr. Anna Lowengard and Lori Protzman, both part of the Advanced Care Planning uh, Coordination and Efforts at Queen's Integrated Physician Network. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on Hawaii Pacific, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. You can also check out kakuamau.org. Our engineer, David Chong, executive producer, Beth Ann Koslovich. We'll see you next week. We're going to talk about this again right on The Body Show.